The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, and as always, joined by my amazing and lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're fine. My world is so small right now. I haven't left my house in three weeks that it's just fine. Well, you know, Bethany, I was thinking about something, which is, uh, I feel like uh, I still have yet to get to know Bethany, and it occurred to me that maybe that's what we should talk about here a little bit, which is a bit more digging into to who we are and how we've come to these places in our lives. So at the end of your 20s, where are you? Are you in a job or something? Or what, what are you doing at the end of your 20s? Yeah. So I listened to a podcast with Brené Brown and Angela Duckworth once, where they both talk about how they spent their 20s trying on lots of different things and identities and who they are and their careers didn't start until their early 30s. And I just loved that episode so much because it made me not be ashamed of the fact that I did nothing in my 20s and my career did not progress in any way and I did not reach any of my goals. And my career really started to take off in my early 30s. And so I have a lot less shame about it. I'm like, look, Angela Duckworth and Brené Brown are just like me, except, you know, popular and famous, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> well, honestly, I think that's the norm, isn't it? I mean, maybe I'm deluding myself. In similar fashion, actually, I read an autobiography of Pierre Trudeau. He was a Canadian prime minister twice over, probably the most famous Canadian prime minister of all time. And of course, Justin Trudeau is his son. He was a, a great speaker, really articulate, super smart, had a wonderful career. And in his biography, he talked about really not having a full-time job until he was in his early 30s. So I was like, oh my God, that's that's unbelievable. That sounds like the path I want to take. <laughs> so over the course of my 20s, and this is, you know, by design, I had no real goals per se outside of graduating from university, I suppose. But purely from a career point of view, there was nothing going on because I was a serial manual laborer, which is Doritos factory, college pro painters, heavy mover, industrial mover, which is the hardest job on the planet, by the way. I enjoyed it. It was good fun. There's like zero responsibility and you get paid, not awesome amounts, but enough to enjoy your life a little bit. So between that and graduating from university, that was the plan. And I accomplished that plan quite readily, I would say. You know, the career journey, like you said, was really the 30s in my case as well. So with that, we've got part two in our transitioning role series. So the first part was, of course, with Cleo Shem, who moved from CO to investor in this case as part of her transition. And today we'll be talking to John Seroff. He's the CEO of Chartbeat, formerly of Google and NBC Universal. And we'll talk about his journey from being a COO to a CEO in this case. So why don't we start with this, Bethany, which is this core question of what does a CEO do and what can a CEO do to build their competence to be effective at that level? And I'll run through a couple key things from my point of view. And I just want to get a sense of what you think here. So the first one is just this basic idea of galvanizing the organization and stakeholders around the vision, the mission, and purpose of the company. 
How can a COO build out competence in this spectrum, do you think? Well, I think that's one that I've been told I'm quite good at. And so it's always one of those things of like, if you already know that you can do it, you don't know how you've done it. It's hard to teach anybody else. But it is something that I've landed on as very important. So when I became chief customer officer at Peak and had like all of these departments reporting to me, and it was the largest team I'd led, I decided I really needed to understand what a leader was and what does leadership mean and what's the definition of leadership. And so I texted my old coach, Al Kenny, and was just like, Al, what does leadership mean? What's the definition? And he texted back like, this is something you'd have to figure out yourself. And I thought he was just being a coach. Very very Yoda of him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. And I thought like, oh, bloody coaches, here you go again, going to make me think it through. And then I started looking at definitions. So I Googled, what is leadership? What's the definition of leadership? And so I started looking at them and I can't remember what Brené Brown's definition was, but as you can probably guess, I'm a big fan of hers. And so she was one of the first people I looked at. And whatever her definition was did not include vision. And I was like, well, I disagree with her definition because for me, the absolute most important thing for a leader is to have a vision that is clear and compelling and then enthuse everybody to want to achieve that vision. How you develop the skill, I don't know, but I think you need it. I think part of it's the intangible of the charismatic CEO in this case being able to very powerfully articulate a storyline, you know, but I think for us more mere mortals, the real question is how do we do it in a way that we're competent? And I think to your point, you've done the podcast circuit, you know, you've done a speaking circuit. You're great at this in terms of being able to articulate. I don't consider myself to be uh, at your level, to be honest, but the couple of things that I do think about is that I come from a product background and being a product leader, it comes a little more naturally to me in that sense, because, you know, a lot of my pitching that I was doing was around the product roadmap. Why is this product strategy tremendously exciting? Why is this roadmap tremendously exciting? And articulating that to the organization to galvanize the company around that roadmap and, of course, customers as well. So that training ground of being a product leader, I thought, actually serves me quite well in this respect. I think the other thing is less is more. And it's like the number of times you see these like massive business cases or super long strategies and nobody remembers it. Nobody gets it. One slide with one sentence is what people will remember and what matters. So I think part of it is super simple. And then the other part is it's a vision. So actually, what does the future look like so that people can see it? And it's not just bullet points. Exactly. My former product leader, he had a awesome technique that I absolutely loved. It was, I I remember questioning him the first time I saw him, like, what is this? Like, why are you doing this? So he would basically put in a slide, a black slide. The entire slide was black. And during his presentation, he would stop the presentation almost. And he's like, the black slide goes up. And he's like, look, I want you, you being the audience, to imagine this. And then he goes on this kind of imaginary, imagined scape storytelling to kind of get them in the space of being excited by the roadmap or whatever he was envisioning for the product in that case. And that black slide and the way that he did it was just a great way to make it pop in that sense. And to your point, no bullet points, no visuals, the black slide, all eyes were on him. He was the focal point. And it's just a great trick of the trade, I think, to make that come alive in that case. I will use that one if I'm brave enough in the future. 
Point number two in the CEO arsenal is this concept of never running out of cash in the bank. And if you look at any blog about a CEO's job, that's responsibility number two in this case. How do you build a competence in this space? So the way I've built it out is being massively involved in all the fundraising rounds. So you start to learn what do investors care about? Because at least in the UK, I know the US is slightly different. 90, 95% of investors are former investment bankers. They maybe have a little bit of operating experience, but pretty much not. So they understand a spreadsheet. They understand numbers. They understand models. And they're super logical. Being involved in fundraising means that you learn how investors think, and then you can translate your business into a spreadsheet and some process flow slides. And I think in this case, you're exactly right, which is you want to be on all the VC calls and not as like an extra person observing, but as a key contributor. And in this respect, understanding your CEO and what they're good at in terms of those calls and you being able to complement and supplement them with something that they're not good at and really adding that value to those VC calls, that's the sweet spot a little bit, which is you're there for a reason, you're there for a purpose. So just purely as an example, in my case, I was the, the SaaS benchmarking KPI guy. So at my fingertips, and I was quite astute about this, here's our metrics, here's our KPIs, this is where we're at, this is what the benchmarks are, this is what the ranges look like. And when we talk to investors and VCs, they love this stuff. And that was my pure play compliment to the CEO that I was working with. He was great at vision. He was great at mission and purpose. I was great at the numbers and the metrics and the KPIs and really contextualizing it to make it really come alive. And I think the last little bit was just more around the market opportunities. So the classic TAM, SAM, SOM. And again, from a VC standpoint, they love that stuff, especially when it's grounded with real credibility in that case. Yeah, I did the exact same role. And also, like just the one point to add in is... Doing fundraising rounds always sounds super sexy and romantic. And if you've not been involved in it or you've been kept at arm's length, you don't really know how to add anything to it. But it's basically just another sales cycle. And so you are pairing off and peering with different people in that process. So the way I've worked is that the CEO peers with the partner and it's selling the visions, but also like selling the process, why this company is unbelievably valuable, why you would be stupid not to be involved and like really building that relationship. And then the COO peering with the associate or like the second layer down who ultimately has to pull together the document for the IC, build out the business model that they believe in. And What my job was, was everything that you're talking about, Brandon, in beautiful slides. Because the more beautiful slides that you create that makes their lives easier, that they can just lift and shift into their investment memo and getting ready for their investment committee, the easier you you make life for them. And then responsibility number three for the CEO in this case, classically, is investor relations and to a lesser extent, uh, key commercial relationships as well. What's your sense of this one? How can a CEO build out competence in this area? Similarly, it's about being a good communicator. So push yourself to speak at as many company events as you can, take an active part in board meetings and see customers. I think oftentimes a COO that doesn't come from a sales background can be quite intimidated around why should I see a customer? What should I say? I don't really know what 
my value is. And I have felt that way at times. But when you go into customer meetings, you're just talking to somebody who has the same level of experience as you do. You can intuitively answer questions and understand where they're coming from more than your sales team. And you might not be able to demo the product yourself, but you can certainly understand the business problems and what customers are struggling with in a way that other people in your team can't. And so just go out and practice and realize that you know more than you think you do. Yeah, I think this is actually a huge one, which is on the commercial side of the business, where there's actual customers or key suppliers that you have. I think you as the CEO of the company, building out a really good relationship with one, two, or three makes entirely good sense to me. And your role, to your point, is not to sell them anything. Your role is to hold, to have a relationship with a senior stakeholder on that customer side of the business, where if there's things to be talked about, issues to be resolved, you have that relationship and you have an ability to, to do that. And I think, to your point, it ensures that your chops when it comes to being able to talk about the company, talk about the product to a customer is there. And it's just a good proving ground, I think, as you kind of grow into the CEO role, where, where you'll end up doing similar things in that respect. Let's own your relationship and your title. That's a time when your title helps you. You could go into the room wrapped in the COO title and everybody will listen to you, <laughs> even if you don't feel like it yourself. So responsibility number four, setting the tone for the culture. What's your take on this one? So even as a COO, when you go and you speak in front of everybody and you're embodying the values, you're still towing the party line. Whereas as CEO, you are setting it. And so I think probably practically it's the same skills, but perception wise, it's slightly different. I see. Okay. So from a competence point of view, there's nothing special the CEO needs to do to build a competence in this area. Given that you're a COO who's spending a lot of time speaking in front of the company and being seen. Yeah. So I think it depends on what level of visibility you have already. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, sorry. You're right, Bethany. I feel like I'm making an assumption here, which is people like us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So why don't we move on to our conversation with John Seraph and let's do that. I am delighted to welcome John Seraph to the show. John is CEO of Chartbeat. And what we're going to be talking about with John today is his transition from COO to CEO of the same company. This is part of our series on COO transitions or what to do after being a COO. Welcome, John. Delighted to be here. So before we get into that journey, I saw another career transition that looked fascinating, which is moving from corporate lawyer to content acquisition for, I think it was NBC, which kind of sounds like a dream job, if not maybe as well-paying as a corporate lawyer. So how in the world did you manage to pull that off? I've often joked that if I ever was going to write a memoir, it would be miserable lawyer to happy business executive in eight easy steps. I was in between jobs and needed some money. And I actually taught a class called Miserable Lawyer to Happy Business Executive in 8 Easy Steps. So there's always a future in that. But I was a miserable lawyer. I had gone to law school. I loved law school. And I also did an MBA at the same time. I I kind of had a sense that in my longer view of my career, I might not want to be a partner at at a big law firm. And I went to a traditional US law firm and I worked on corporate deals. And I was pretty miserable. The work was insane. 
in terms of hours, it was, you know, somewhat mind numbing. And I also think that I didn't really want to be a partner. I mean, I think one of the things that I realized very, very quickly was that the brass ring at the end of this, which was joining the partnership, which my colleagues were very, very eager to do, I just didn't want to do. So as a result, I kind of resolved after really just a few months, like, I got to get the hell out of here. And I would say that I had kind of a health scare along the way, which was that I became very, very depressed. And I think that the one thing that I will say is that treating that really helped. You know, I think a combination of the sleep deprivation, the pressure, probably some things in my genetic makeup had just crushed me. So I went and saw a really great psychiatrist and, you know, he took really good care of me. And he was like, well, why are you doing this anyway? And I was like, I don't know. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, made me think that, okay, there's a, there's a world out there. And I just activated my network. You know, I, I, it took me about six months from getting healthy, making the decision that I was going to leave. And then I just networked my ass off. I literally sent emails to everyone I knew in media. I'd always loved media and wanted to work in media. Sent emails to everyone I knew in media, cold called people, et cetera. And I was very lucky, which is that NBC was looking for a person who knew a little bit enough about the law to kind of be able to negotiate contracts, but someone who knew enough about media to be able to talk to media customers. You know, I interviewed with 26 people for the job, got the job, and that was how I made the transition. And actually, the guy who hired me is still one of my best friends, a guy named Mike Stive, who's a, the CEO of Artsy, was the VP who hired me at, at NBC, and we're still very close. It was a great break. But I would say that the one thing that I think was about it was that, you know, as COOs, we think a lot about funnels, right? And I had a big top of funnel. I emailed and called everybody. And I probably got 99 no's, but I got one yes, and that got me going. What is the job of a CEO, and how does it differ from a CO in your eyes? It's totally, totally different. And I think it's different in ways in which I didn't appreciate when I was the COO. So I would say that the biggest difference is it's all on you. I would say that there's this thing that you do when you have every job other than the CEO, which is like at the end of the night, you can go to bed and you can be like, well, ultimately it's that guy's problem or, or that woman's problem. Everything is my fault. Absolutely everything. I'm accountable for everything. And that's an enormous, enormous change. And I also think another thing that is really, really different is the levers that you use to affect that change are really different. So, you know, as COO, you use a lot of operational levers, right? That's the job. That's the name of the podcast, right? Use a lot of operational levers. And I think as CEO, you use more kind of decision-making levers, right? So it's much more about leading people to the right answer through setting a compelling vision, a compelling mission, creating a great culture, making sure you're hiring the right people. Then it is about, you know, figuring out how to grind down, you know, an extra 10% efficiency, I think one thing about having been COO is that I know how to do both now. You know, my COO roots, if any of my teams need help getting some more efficiency out of something, I, I'm a good resource, but it's a very different job. And do you have a COO now? I do not. At first, out of practicality, then for a while out of intention, and now I think it's you know probably up in the air again. I think when I became the CEO, it was a, kind of a funny transition. My predecessor, who's a wonderful guy named Tony Hale, he left the company to go start a company called Scroll, which he then ultimately sold to Twitter. And, you know, when he left, the, the venture capitalists associated with the firm, with Chartbeat, were like, how about you take over? You, <laughs> you know, there's nothing that VCs hate more than a CEO search, you know, especially with a company that is 
at that point, six or seven years old. So they, they, you know, they looked around and I was the least bad choice and they put me in the chair. But, you know, very practically speaking, you know, we were still venture backed. We were losing money as part of our strategy. And I quickly realized that in order to stabilize the business, I was going to have to get costs under control. And one great way to do that was to not have a COO. So originally that was the reason. And then I think in a small company, I actually think it can be very, very confusing. When I say small company, I mean under 100, like really small. I think it can actually be confusing. You have like the mommy daddy problem where people will go to the COO. I'm sure everybody who's listened to this podcast knows what I'm talking about. And they'll be like, oh, can I fly to Zimbabwe? And the COO will say, no, you can't fly to Zimbabwe. Like, we don't have any targets in Zimbabwe. And then they'll go to the CEO and they'll be like, can I go to Zimbabwe? And he'll be like, yes, you definitely go. Like, I want to open up the, I want to open up the African market. And I wanted to avoid that at first, right? I wanted to avoid that. And now as the company's gotten bigger, I think I have begun to consider it again. Like, you know, but then I think you get into the whole question of how do you define the role? And I, I know some topics that you've covered before, which is no two of those jobs are, are alike. So I, I have not backfilled myself, but I'm certainly going forward, possibly open to it. You talked about in the first answer about stresses of the job and ultimately rolls up to a single individual, which is you in this case. So can you maybe describe a bit of the stress difference between being a CEO versus the CEO and what that heightened difference looks like, just to kind of give our CEOs a bit of a, a sense of what they're up against when they, when they hit that role? I wouldn't say there's more or less stress. It's just very different. The one thing that is le much less stressful about being the CEO is that you're ultimately accountable and you can do whatever you want. That sounds crude and crass, but the actual ability to make the decision, and yes, I'm accountable to my board and there are ramifications for my team. If I make half-baked decisions, I try not to make half-baked decisions, although you should interview my team and find out if I actually do. <laughs> But I know ultimately that if there's a crisis, I can make the decisions and I'm in charge is actually in some ways very, very stress reducing. I would say that there are things that you're stressful about that I think a COO, you know, like I'm much more concerned about how the team is doing. Are folks, you know, motivated and really, really coming to work because they love what they do or are they punching a clock? And I think one of the things that's really great about our company is that we built a culture where people are really, really excited to come to work and really motivated, and we're able to recruit great people as a result of that. Also, cash. Cash is obviously important to the COO, right? A lot of COOs have that kind of you know, finance or, or sales and marketing background, but cash is life. And actually having to think about being accountable for all the cash that's in the business, where it's going, how it's being allocated is just very, very different. I think as the COO, I was much more responsible for deploying that cash effectively. Whereas a CEO, I make the decision and then kind of tell people how to deploy it. Those are the two things that I think, even when we're, you know, we're profitable now and e even when we're making money and, you know, there's no existential risk to the business, thinking about how you're deploying cash and where you're putting it and is it being put to its best use is a very, very different thing than as COO where you're more, that decision's kind of made for you and you have to actually put it, you know, just have to carry it out. I have to say, it sounds really nice. Because I think, how much time do we spend talking about like how to deal with the CEO who's controlling and won't let go of any decision making? And so you're responsible, but you don't actually have the authority to make decisions is immensely stressful. You know, I think a lot of the Sam Bankman Freed trial, I could imagine, you know, many of the listeners to this podcast having a lot of sympathy for people like Caroline Ellison and the other 
you know, witnesses because they had this very controlling CEO who was like totally inaccessible, spending money like crazy, not listening to them. You know, it was like the dramas that, in, that exist inside many companies just blown up to the hundreds of billions level. So I've been there. I, I know what it's like. Tony was a terrific partner and we're very, very good friends. But, you know, there were certainly times when I was like, God, I wish I could just deploy the cash. And then all of a sudden I was in charge of it. And I was like, oh, this is a little stressful. <laughs> Let's just change how we yeah, make these calls now. When it sudden stops being theoretical and starts being actual. Yeah, I get that. Exactly. I was really curious about when you mentioned the depression that you had struggled with being a corporate lawyer and then becoming COO, but then CEO, like you need to have a lot of emotional resource for it and the ability to handle the ups and downs. How have you balanced both, if you don't mind me asking? You know, I think there was nothing as bad as the depression I had as a corporate lawyer. Let's put that to be clear. You know, I think like a lot of type A people, I had been, you know, I'd never really been bad at anything. Also, I was totally sleep deprived and I was totally without any support at the firm. And I was very, very fortunate that I was able to find a spectacular psychiatrist who I actually still see to this day. You know, it's been 17 years under his supervision and he's the best, you know, and through a blend of psychopharmacology and, uh, you know, meaning prescriptions and talk therapy, you know, we've worked it out. And I've never had a depression as massive as the one that I had at the firm. But sure, you know, like anybody who has struggled with anything mental health related, you know, I've had my ups and downs and my blue days and my blue periods and just being able to have a, a terrific resource. And I think that's one of the things that I feel extraordinarily lucky for. And also to be able to ensure that I did this first as COO and now as CEO, make sure that my company's health plans enable folks to get get access to that and, you know, destigmatize it and, you know, make sure that folks, whether it's a small D depression and they're just having a shitty day or a big D and there's a real issue, making sure that people have the space and the time to take care of it is really important. I would actually say that luckily for me, things have largely improved, right? There's, I've never been as down as I was in that time period. But that's, I think, because of the care that I'm in and the care that I've been in for, you know, for 17 years. So it's a success story, right? There is, there is life on the other side. And actually, it's funny you say that because the first chapter of Miserable Lawyer to Happy Business Executive is make sure you get help. Because I think a lot of folks who are really, really unhappy in their jobs probably have some low-level depression or anxiety or even high-level and people know how to treat it, right? It's not something that's incurable. It's something that in many cases can be helped and most cases can be helped. Were you in your 20s? Yeah, I think I was 26, maybe? 27? Yeah, I have to say, I would never relive my 20s. <laughs> I think I would relive any other decade but my 20s. I found the 20s the hardest in the entire world. Maybe mine were just like numbed by drugs and disappointment. I'm going to interview the interviewer. Why, why were they so bad? I think it was a lot of what you're talking about of like type A personality, always not the top of my class, but nearly the top of my class, which made me much better than the person at the top of the class because I had more perspective <laughs> in my competitive brain. And then you follow all of the rules, finish university, and you should just continue being the best at everything. And I didn't go into consulting and I didn't go into investment banking because I moved to London instead. And then nobody here cared that I went to Columbia. And I was just like another graduate. And I thought I was smarter than everybody else. 
I wasn't, but of course, you know, you have to learn that. So I was like, why don't I have the job that I should have? And then at the same time, I didn't really know what I wanted. And then I remember when I turned 25, I cried for the entire day because I was now going to be closer to 30 than 20 and my life was over and I was no closer to my life goals. I feel like our backgrounds couldn't be any more different. I I think literally I didn't have a full-time job until I was 28 years old, never mind being top of my class and being woeful for my 20s in this sense. I was working at a Doritos factory as uh, she was getting A's across university and yeah. It takes all kinds, right? I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things about both of these jobs, COO and CEO, is that you need to be able to flex. Every company needs Doritos factory experience and especially Doritos factory experience and the type A more traditional experience. When you reflect back on the past seven years as a CEO, what is it that you would have uh, wished you had known day one entering the position itself? Fast forward seven years. It's a great, great, great question and something that I think about all the time. So I think the first thing is the importance of vision and mission. And sometimes I use those words interchangeably and sometimes I use them separately, right? Vision being what is the company doing to improve its world or the world and mission being how it's going to do it. As COO, you think about that and maybe you live that. You're not really responsible for it. And I think in my first two years, of CEOing, I kind of was in denial about how important that was. Um, there were a couple big influences in my life. It was an informed denial, but I think it was still wrong, which is there's a great Lou Gershner book about the time he took over IBM called Who Says Elephants Can't Dance? And when Gershner took over IBM, he said, the first thing he said was, the last thing this company needed was a new vision, which is really ironic because he basically changed the entire vision of IBM. So I don't know why he said that. But at the time, I was kind of like, oh, like I'm going to be like Lou Gerstner. Like, this company doesn't need a vision. I also met, I think, the CEO maybe of eBay in the time. And I asked him what his corporate vision was. And he was like, oh, like everybody tells you you need one of those and, and you don't. Both of those things are totally wrong. Like, especially in a market where you're competing for talent with places like Google and Facebook and the big investment banks, and you're competing for customers with folks like Adobe and, and Google. You need to be able to tell both your employees, your customers, and yourself why what you're doing is important. And I think that it took me two years, I think the first year in denial that that was important, the second year kind of fumbling around and trying to figure out what ours was going to be before I actually you know, started to really nail it. And now it seems so obvious in retrospect that that was, should have been one of the first things I worked on. Because if you have a good vision, everything kind of falls into place. And, and actually... The thing that I like to use is in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talks about this thing called the hedgehog concept, which is, you know, what is the single thing that you're the best in the world at that moves your economic engine and that fires up your employees and, and makes everyone want to come to work? And if you can find something that sits at the single point of those three, you're going to be okay. And I think that if I was going to give advice to anybody in their first 90 days of being a CEO, like read that chapter and start looking for that thing. Because it usually exists already at the company. It usually just needs to be kind of dusted off and cleaned up and shaped up. So I was speaking to somebody recently who was struggling with their CEO. And as part of the conversation, we realized that the CEO didn't have a job. And so was meddling with everybody else's jobs because they had recently hired in a leadership team 
And now a lot of the like operational stuff they were doing, they weren't doing anymore. And so then they didn't know what their job was. When you transition from COO to CEO, did you struggle with figuring out what your job was now? I actually think it was much harder to define my role as COO, to be honest, because I think I vacillated between being kind of the sales, marketing, and finance leader with the title of COO and second in command on everything. One of the things that I think changed over time was kind of going back and forth. I think that was harder. I think as CEO, you know, I I was a camp counselor. Uh, It was like my first job. I was a summer camp counselor for teenagers in my summers during college. Um, Very, very American job, right? You go up and live in the woods for two months with a bunch of 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old teenagers. You know, you teach them baseball and build a fire and stuff like that. And then when I was in college, I ran the freshman orientation program. So at my university, I was responsible for, with a good friend of mine, we did it together. We were responsible for the basically the experience of the first week of every first-year student's college experience. And I think that a lot of what I did very, very quickly was kind of take the things that I learned there and brought them to the CEO role. So I think of myself mostly as a very, very, very involved coach. You know, almost like a, for our British audiences, like a Jurgen Klopp, because I'm a Liverpool fan for our, you know, American audiences, you know, like a Bill Parcells, because I'm a New York Giants fan, right? And one of the things about my job that's really interesting is that everybody who I've hired is much better at their job than I am, right? Whether you're, you know, relatively junior person in sales or you're our staff engineer, like you're better at your job than I am. So all I can do is coach. All I can do is kind of coach and coaching can be both big picture coaching, like, hey, like this is where we're trying to get to and I need you to think about how to get us there. Or it can be very, very tactical coaching, like you are doing this wrong and I know why you're doing this wrong and let me help you because I did this 20 years ago. And that's the kind of role I play. So a lot of my CEOing is, there's a great Andy Grove quote, right? Which is, you know, the one-on-one is the one hour a week that you can affect somebody's other six days. Really, really structured, thoughtful one-on-ones with all of my leaders. I lead the all hands every week. We have a company all hands every week. I still lead it because I feel like that's a chance to coach the whole company and and cheerlead the whole company. You know, I run our board relationships because I feel like actually engaging with the board, understanding what they want. You know, they're like the owner, right? They're like the in the Liverpool example, they're like John Henry in the Giants example. They're like the Mara family, right? They ultimately, it's their money. So, you know, I really, really feel like. That's the analogy for me. And I feel like sometimes actually meddling is actually really healthy. I think the part that can be really challenging is that your employees have to know why you're meddling. Because I think people can be like, wait a second, like I'm the CRO, like why are you like calling us a client, right? And I think it's really important for the CEO to communicate clearly to, in this case, the CRO and be like, I am calling this client because I know him really well, or I'm sorry she won't tell you the truth because you're trying to sell her something and she'll tell me the truth because I'm the CEO or whatever. And I think that's where things break down. So I would encourage to that colleague of yours, like, and actually everyone, just ask the CEO, like, what are you trying to achieve here? Like, what is the purpose of what you're trying to do? And if they don't know, like, that's a problem, right? <laughs> you know, like, I think a lot of CEOs, like, just, you know, kind of wing it. And I think being intentional is really, really important. And, and to the extent that the COO can help the CEO be more intentional. I think that can be actually a a great role for the COO to play. 
So I guess uh, a different thought occurs to me. This is maybe a little more personally relevant in some ways, but when do you think uh, a CEO is ready to take the mantle of being a CEO? Like, What's a primetime CEO that's ready to take the seat as a CEO in this case? Many COOs are already ready and just don't realize it because the jobs are so different that if you're qualified to be a COO, you may also be qualified to be a CEO, especially in the size of the companies. I mean, we're not talking about Disney, right? You know, we're talking about Chartbeat, right, which is a you know, 250-person company. So I think the scorecard is different. If you're building a, like an interview sheet, the interview sheet is different. But the things that you need, you know, executive presence, communication skills, the ability to both manage the board and manage the employees, I think those are things that are probably the most important, right? Like you have to be able to speak the language of a board member, whether that's a private equity person, a venture capitalist, or an independent board member. And you have to be able to speak compellingly to an employee straight out of you know high school or college. That's something that I would look for in a COO or in a CEO. I think it's the framing is different. A COO is trying to operationalize, right? They're trying to get incremental improvement out of the team. Whereas the CEO is trying to affect step change, right? By either allocating capital or setting an inspiring direction. And I think people can flex to do one or the other. It's just kind of like, can you hit that framing and really, really nail it? So I don't think it's necessarily about skills. It's more about you know mindset and a willingness to be flexible in your in your mindset. And take on the ultimate accountability. The buck stops with you. That took me a long time to be willing to even consider that. I knew I did not have the emotional reserves for it for a long time, but feel like I've figured out how to do that now. That's very self-aware. I think a lot of folks are, are not, I think a lot of folks when they're chasing the brass ring are not that self-aware. And I think that's a very uh, self-aware point. So John, I'd love to carry on talking, but unfortunately we're rapidly running out of time already. Our final question is if our listeners can only take one thing away from our conversation or from the podcast today, what is that one thing? I would not have said this before we started down this path, but I would say that the taking good care of yourself point, I think, is the most important point. No matter what job you're in, you can only do your best work when you are taking good care of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, et cetera. And I think that for a lot of us who are COOs who want to make the transition, right, actually staying calm, staying focused, and being able to think clearly is really, really what makes all of us successful. And I think in order to do that, you got to take good care of yourself. When I think back on all of the transitions that I've made, I've been like fired like three times, right? Or four times, right? And if you told me in high school that I would be fired four times, I'd be like, uh-oh. But just being able to rebound and make the transitions requires a clear head and a physical and mental and emotional. And make sure you take time for yourself. Make sure you're taking that time, taking good care of yourself and keep going, right? And I think the other thing, just to round it out, is to Brandon's point earlier, it only takes one yes, right? So if you're really, really, really set on a being a, a CEO and you want to make that transition, it only takes one yes. It may be the company that you're at now. It may be a company that you've looked at. It may be an investor you know or something like that. But I think that you know that's the other point, which is like, you're not stuck, right? You just haven't had the right opportunity yet. I was reading a book called... You're a badass at making money, something like that. I can't remember. It, like, there's a woman who's done this badass series. So, like, just you're a badass in general, then making money and some other things. And she had a very similar point of like, know where you want to go. Don't inhibit yourself and tell yourself you can't do it. And then just 
go for it. Put in all the energy, talk to everybody that you know, and you'll get there in the end. And she has all these case studies for it. And there you have with your NBC story, like the example. We actually have an episode coming up. I think, I can't remember the the schedule right now, where we're talking about embodied leadership and emotional literacy. And I just was wondering if we could carry on from what you just said around resourcing yourself and being emotionally available. What have you done to be able to become that person versus the incredibly depressed corporate lawyer? (laughs) You know, a lot of talk therapy, really good care. And then also things like really, really working on your listening skills. There are great active listening courses that you can take. I mean, I think I probably took my first one in college and active listening is a thing. It's a discipline that can be learned. And I think that's one of them. It can be so tempting to have an opinion on everything. And I think just reminding yourself that you have your feelings, your feelings are real, but your opinions are just your opinions. Everyone's rushing to say like, oh, you know, this person's an idiot because they did that. This person's an idiot doing that, right? And just saying like, it occurs to me that that's not a great decision is a world of difference. And I think those are the things that I, I think I do, right? One, number one, taking care of myself holistically. And then number two, reminding myself that I'm just a person with feelings and opinions. Everybody in my company is the same and all my customers are the same. Lovely. So that's a, a wonderful way to wrap us up. Uh, so thank you, John, Sarah, for joining us on the operations room. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment and we will see you next week. Next week.